Well, good morning. Um, we are in the book of John, John chapter 13. We'll be in verses 18 through 30. And I want to open up in prayer. I want to pray for Jeff, too, and uh, just commit this to the Lord. By the way, we have Bibles under the center columns of the middle aisle here, however you phrase that. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to have one of those. It's our gift to you. Jesus, we need you today. We really need you. In fact, we don't even realize how much we need you. And so we need you to come and reveal how much we need you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and do that and inhabit us and breathe on the word and bring it into our lives and challenge what we think we know about you. But Lord, just more than our knowledge, God, come and soften our hearts. God, come and make us rejoice in the word. Come and make us love what you love, God, and hate what you hate. Lord, I pray that in this passage, we would see your emotions. We would see the reality of your humanity, what you felt for us. And God, I just, I, I pray that you really would do work, God, in us, that you would draw us into you, that you would be our dominant reality, God, and, and that there wouldn't be distractions in our lives, but Lord, every facet of our lives would be an expression of the joy that we found in Jesus. And I pray for Jeff today. I pray that you would fill him with the Holy Spirit and that he would see Jesus clearly and that he would preach your word with conviction and, and passion and truthfulness. And I pray for that local church there that they would receive the word and, and grow in you and grow in affection for one another. I pray for your global church, Jesus, that you would unite us around Jesus. And Lord, we pray for the church in Syria and Iraq, in the Middle East. God, I pray that you would strengthen them and that they would be like Stephen, beholding the glory of the Lord while being persecuted. Lord, and that you would make their faces radiant to shine before you and that the world would know that there's a greater hope and a greater joy, that this is not the end of life, but there is a greater treasure and a greater world to come and a greater reign to come. And so I pray that you would bring hope, God, to the church in the Middle East today in Jesus' name, amen. Man, Holy Spirit's good to, to show up and unite us and bring us into Christ. We're in John 13. I want to give a little bit of context for where we're going with this. So Jeff last week went through verses 1 through 17, and, and really that story flows into this story. This is a narrative. So you kind of got to catch the drift of the story. Um, and so the context is foot washing, Jesus gathers his disciples, right? And Jesus knows that it is his time to depart from the world to the Father in verse 1. And Jesus loved his own and loved them to the end, verse 1. The devil, uh, we also know that the devil has already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. 
verse 2. And in verses 3 through 5, I'm just going to read that real quick for context. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So what we're going to deal with in the passage that I'm going to be dealing with is the knowledge that Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him and still he washes his feet. And that tension there of, (laughs) this is emotionally troubling, Jesus, but he's still in a posture of full service and full love to the people around him. He's undeterred. Verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so our narrative picks up there. And this passage of scripture really is like a scene with many parts. And so Here's my plan. I see six parts to this scene that we're going to be talking about here. And it, it has a trajectory and it escalates. And I'm going to give some observations. And my plan is to inspect and describe the scenes and then unpack the scene. So the first part we have here is verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you to the disciples in the room. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And this is weird. So he's talking with his disciples. We'd be like, man, they're his disciples. Remember, the disciples don't know that Judas is going to betray Jesus. They're chilling. They think, man, we're all here together. This is great. He just washed our feet. We tried to not let him do that, but he did it. This guy's legit. Kind of weird, but legit. And so they're there hanging with Jesus, and he, he, he brings in this phrase, I'm not speaking of all of you. Not all of you will do what I have done. Not all of you will follow in a posture of servitude and do follow my example because I know whom I have chosen. And so it seems as though Jesus is saying, even within the cluster of people that are hanging out with Jesus, there's a different thing going on. Jesus chooses some and not others. Jesus knows exactly whom he has chosen. We knew this from John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And so maybe one of the evidences of knowing the good, of being known by the good shepherd is 
knowing the good shepherd as he is. Jesus is not speaking of a pool of men that have made verbal commitments to him. Yes, I'll follow you. Yes, I'll leave. He, he's getting at something a little bit deeper here. He wants to penetrate more than verbal affirmation and proximity. He's getting at something a little bit deeper than that in this passage, and it's just going to keep escalating. He is speaking of a race of people who have been chosen by the Father through him before the foundations of time. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Whoa. If you want to do something cool, do a little study about before the foundation of the world. There's four passages. There's a lot of passages that say the foundation of the world, but there's four passages in the Bible that talk about before the foundation of the world, and it gives us a glimpse into before the world was created by God, what was he doing? And here's a little picture. Here's some of what he was doing, was choosing people in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So chooses us to be in him, that before him, we would be holy and blameless. So the evidence then of being chosen in him is being holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so here's the sovereignty of Jesus in this moment. Second part is he says, he who ate my bread lifted his heel against me. And he's quoting Psalm 41.9. And so he's alluding to his betrayal. He's, he's giving a little bit of preface for the things he's about to say explicitly, clearly, in people's face. But he's, he's hinting at something greater right now. And he says, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And, and so he's giving us a picture that the sovereignty of Jesus' betrayal is food for us. He says, I know whom I have chosen. And there's someone here that's going to lift his heel against me. He's going to come against me so that you may believe that I am he. The betrayal of Jesus is supposed to lead to something a little bit deeper. You say, man, that's the most agonizing, painful moment in the universe that the perfect, innocent son of God is going to go into betrayal. And he's saying, so that you may believe that I am he. Jesus is prefacing his, and predicting his betrayal. And it's kind of like, okay, so why don't you do something about that? Like, it's going to betray me. Why don't you have like a game plan, Jesus? Come on, bro, leadership. Like, bro, a little bit of risk management. Like, I saw that coming a mile away. We got like 11 lawyers on this right now. Luke, do something. Mitigate, please. He's not doing that. 
And he does that so his prophecy of his own betrayal might show that he is completely sovereign. I know I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm stronger than that. And it's part of the plan. You think that Satan can be divisive and mess up my plan. He can't. You think that Judas can mess up the plan. He can't. I'm God. That's where Jesus is going with this. God did not stop the crucifixion of Jesus because God planned the crucifixion of Jesus because God is completely loving and has set forth his son as a propitiation for many that we might believe and be saved. Without this moment happening right now, there's no salvation for us. Without someone taking our place, without someone else facing the wrath of God, we would. But by his grace, Jesus was set forth for us. And so Jesus did not deter from the path of laying down his life. He planned it, he meant it, and he is making it known to the disciples subtly now, clearly later, that what he is about to do is an expression of love that only God could give. And so we're going to see the convergence of absolute sovereignty and absolute love in the betrayal of Jesus. Verse 20. Jesus is commissioning his disciples with a promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me in my preparation. This confused me. I was like, are you talking about the Holy Spirit or us? Or is there some context? And the context is foot washing. Remember, he's giving a commission to his disciples, as I've just done for you, go and do. And the thing is there that if their hearts are so impressed by the tangible love of God to act in such a humble servitude type of way, their hearts will be stirred to that kind of action. And so he's saying, whoever receives the one I send, and so he's sending his disciples. If people receive you, they receive me, because their hearts will be opened. And whoever receives me receives the Father who sent me. Here's the principle. God has a vast treasury of wealth to give. He's, he's got a lot to give, and he's given a lot to us, and we now are inheritors and carriers of that vast treasury of wealth. His treasury is inexhaustible, so don't act like you give better than God and can manage better than him. You need what he gives, and he loves to give. And here's something we do. When we receive deeply from Jesus and let him wash our feet, then we will be predisposed to serving the world around us. We need to receive deeply from Jesus and give richly to one another. Now here's the problem. A lot of us carry a posture of, 
We need to give to Jesus, earn our salvation, earn our justification, look before the Lord and say, Lord, look what I've done for you. And then what that does in our hearts is we become demanding towards people, right? And we start wanting to get our needs met through people. But if we go before the Lord like a child with faith saying, I know you've got stuff to give. Lord, you're giving yourself. You're a vast treasury, an endless expanse of of everything that could be given. And when we go and say, I need to receive, I need to receive, I need to receive, then we're so poised to give, give, give to people. But if we get that messed up, then we become religious and, and we break off our connection with God trying to give to him and we break off our connection with people trying to steal from them. And so let's go to God saying, Lord, we know that you've got a lot to give and, and, and God loves that. He's not saying, okay, I've given you enough, now go do your thing. And sometimes we think that, like I'm not gonna bother Jesus anymore. There's a lot going on in culture that says that if you work for yourself, Jesus will work for you. It's like, no. Jesus worked for you. Receive that. Now go work for others. That they might too receive the work of Jesus. All right. Step off that, Peter. Move along. We receive from Jesus and we give to people. Giving to people does not build your worth, but is evidence that you have received worth of the eternally worthy one in Jesus. So doing stuff for people doesn't build your worth, but it is evidence on display that you've received worth from Jesus. Don't go in your own strength. Receive foot washing. We need to go before the Lord and receive from him. Sometimes it's awkward. I've had my feet washed, and I've washed people's feet, and ew. Okay? Weird. Especially today. It's like, if you, if you tried to do that in D.C., bro, let me wash your feet. Bro, I make $100,000 and drive a BMW. Get on my peripherals. That's what would happen. I'm like, okay. Don't want to miss it. So there's a humble posture that comes with receiving from Jesus. And when we do that, we can give freely. Verse 21. By the way, um, some of these other parts in first chunks are going to be larger. So I I have a tendency to kind of go slow in the beginning. So bear with me. People will be like, man, it's halfway through and he's gone through two verses. Um, we're going somewhere, okay? Don't just hang tight. Don't get a latte, something, I don't know. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. But he's Jesus. And testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Imagine how intimate the dinner table is. How awkward that would be. It's interesting. I think there's three things to note here. The troubled spirit of Jesus. 
Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And those two things are not at odds. He's fully in control, and he's fully feeling pain. He's anticipating. And again, it's like, Jesus, you know what's going to happen. If you know what's going to happen, why don't you do something about it? But it's almost like he's encouraging it along. What are you doing? Jesus is greatly anticipating that which is about to happen, but he's already submitted to the will of the Father, but he's troubled. His spirit is troubled. If your spirit's troubled, go to Jesus. You know, he knows what that is like. Let your spirit be troubled sometimes. There are things in this world that we anticipate, circumstances that come our way where it is okay to be troubled and it should drive us to Jesus. The will of the Father was that Jesus would not fight the betrayal but go through with it. And if that were not true, then Jesus would not be willfully accepting that which he knows is coming, and he is. Now, in here, we also get the foreknowledge of Jesus. The act of betrayal is set in stone in his mind, and he feels it. He's thinking about it. And simultaneously, he's allowing it to happen. The foreknowledge of Jesus is the canvas of his love. When we see how much Jesus really knows, and there's a grid for realizing that he's, he's seeing this thing coming, then we see also the posture of him to hold back and say, but I love them, but I'm going through with this. And he knows that his blood will be shed, and he knows that he will gain a church a people for his own possession. Love is most greatly displayed when someone decides to count the cost, face the pain, and love through it. Here's the nature of betrayal. Betray means to give over into the hands of another or to give over into one's power or use. And notice that this isn't some outside dude. This is a dude that has been chilling for three years with these guys. He's in. Yo, Judas, what's up, bro? Man, you catch like 20 fish today? Yeah, it was awesome. But in his heart, something else is totally going on. And so he's in, and so this nature of betrayal, he's not saying, yes, someone from the outside world, maybe one of those Pharisees, or there's going to be this like crazy dude out of Russia just storming in here at any moment. No, he's saying, between us, in this intimate moment, Someone here is going to betray. Remember, Judas had just received a foot washing from Jesus. No wonder that Jesus' soul was troubled. He wasn't going to be betrayed by an enemy, but by a friend. And so this is warranting the troubling of Jesus' spirit. The pain of the moment is always real, but the purposes of God weigh deeper into reality. Jesus showed genuine emotion in this passage. He hurt deeply. Jesus is fully sovereign and fully humble. Verses 23 through 25, <clears throat> the disciples are going to give an a response because you can imagine they don't know it's Judas 
Judas knows it's Judas. He said, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. I might freak out a little, right? Is it me? Like, well, do you think it's you? Like, why do you think it's you? Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, remember John's writing this book, so we don't know if he's conceited or just really, really humble or false humble, but he's not mentioning his actual name. He's just saying the one Jesus loved. That's quite the claim, but it's true. Was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him, hey, vicariously, can you ask Jesus for me? To, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, let's draw a contrast between the posture of John and the posture of Peter. And I used to take this personally. I'd be like, hey, man, don't put Peter in a bad light, bro. Like, pastors always did that. And I'm like, hey, that's who this guy is. Um, but here, here's the difference. John is resting against Jesus. He has Jesus. He's not worried. And having Jesus yields assurance, not worry. Notice John's not really reacting here. He's still chilling against Jesus. Was reclining at table at Jesus' side. It's just, he's there. It's as if he's saying, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. He has all he needs. And much of the world worries. We, we worry so much about losing things. But when you have Jesus, when you're there presently, not worried about your association with him later on, there's peace. The church is called to be a people that are deeply rooted, contently joyful, and assured in the presence of Jesus. While Peter, on the other hand, is still living by the law, unassured, not worried about justification by faith, but worried about justification by, am I going to betray or not betray? Jesus, I gotta know. Am I the one that's going to betray you or am I the one that's not going to betray you? And here's the thing, the way to go with Jesus to the end, remember, Peter wasn't at the foot of the cross, John was. The way to handle that moment is not to worry about whether or not you're going to betray Jesus or not, but to have Jesus. Here's the thing, if you're actively loving Jesus, spending time with him, engaging with him, getting to know him, trusting him, resting in his presence, it doesn't even have to be active. You can just be still and know that he is God. The worry wipes away of wondering whether or not your heart is going to wander and whether or not you're going to be accused of doing something wrong. It's the difference between Worrying about going into the negatives and just shooting into the positives. You don't have to worry about going into the negatives if you're just focused on the main point, Jesus. Here, Peter resembles Martha's posture towards Mary and Jesus. Instead of letting John enjoy peace in Jesus, Peter brings John into the anxiousness 
of his own soul in relation relation to Jesus. John, could you ask Jesus, I'm nervous. You do it. Jesus died for the church and now reigns forever, which means that we can be in a constant place of enjoying union with Christ together. Look, we don't have to worry anymore, church. Jesus isn't coming back again to say, I'm gonna die again. He did die, and that assures us and solidifies for us that forever we can be in communion with him and together enjoy one another as we commune with him. It escalates a little bit more. Okay, we, we remember in the setting, they're, they're chilling. He just washed feet, they're eating. And he said, one of you will betray me. Okay, and now they're kind of worrying about it. And Jesus just wants to take it a little bit too far. Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. What if someone did that? The person that's going to betray me is taking this piece of bread right now. Be like, everyone knows who it is, or so we think. That is intense. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. I just want to make a contextual observation. That's when gluten intolerance began. Jesus handed him a morsel, and immediately Satan entered into him. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what they all say. You know, it's like... If I'm acting like Satan, it's because I just ate this bread. Um, and that's what's going on. It's, it's a condition I have. Um, yeah, okay. I mean, could the air get more thick? Jesus, why do you want to make things more awkward and intense? Like, do you really have to say, hey, one of you is going to betray me. Hey, the guy that I'm handing bread to is going to betray me. Like, what does that do for us? Why do we have to know that? Jesus, why, why do you not sabotage the plan of your betrayal? Jesus, why do you send Judas to initiate your arrest? If you know all this is coming, why not stop it? If I'm Peter, I'm taking out a sword. He did do that, right? I'm phoning a friend. I'm doing something. Like, do you have a life insurance plan? But here's the purpose. Jesus is set on a mission for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He's going somewhere. This agony, this pain isn't just like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do next. What would be the godly thing to do? He's got a vision. He's got a plan. That's why he's here. Isaiah 53, 7 through 11. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who was considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah already prophesied this trajectory for Jesus. The beginning of launching his crucifixion, the beginning of betrayal, the road, the royal carpet, the red carpet going down towards his purpose, dying on the cross for us. It was set. It's his plan. It's in his heart. He's not just saying, okay, I guess I gotta do it. It's in his heart. It's his joy to take upon himself the grief that we deserved so that we could have joy in him and so that we could be counted righteous, so that he would bear our sin and the punishment that we deserved. And this is all part of that. It is why he yields his perfect sovereignty and displays his perfect love. And it's what we center around. Jesus is sovereign over evil. (laughs) Evil can't deter him. They think they're crushing Jesus, and they are. And Jesus knows that he's going to rise, and with him, a bride is going to rise. With him, a people for his own possession that were once not a people and far off are now a people. That's what he's doing, and it is beautiful. The greatest evil birthed the greatest good. The greatest good far outweighed the greatest evil, and we've yet to see the fullness of that greatest good. It's not, it's not fully here yet. But Jesus accomplished something once for all. The glory of God on the cross, and that's where the betrayal is heading, illuminates the glory of God through his blood-bought church for eternity. For eternity, we're going to know that the thing holding us together, the fabric, the fiber that holds these broken sinners, these people together is the blood of Jesus. And we'll know the story that he took it upon himself to say, I know someone's going to betray me. I'm going for it to do the will of God, to be crushed for them, to love them, to bring them in, to give them my righteousness, which they could not earn on their own. He's going somewhere. And finally, part six, verse 28, verses through verse 30. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, whoa, context clue. Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. 
or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. The disciples don't get it. That's how in Judas is. That's how in he is. Did you know you can be in and not be in? You can be around. You can even be a disciple. Like people have these arguments. What's better, believer, disciple, Christian, or disciple? Which terminology? Hey, you can be a disciple and not have eternal life. You can follow for three years and be in and everyone else think you're in and not be in. The disciples did not understand the significance of the moment. Perhaps much good was assumed about Judas. I mean, he's the money guy, right? He's a steward of things. The difference between a chosen disciple and someone who hangs around Jesus is John had Jesus, Judas had the money bag. John had Jesus for Jesus. Judas had Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The true believer is one that says, Jesus is more than enough for me. And John ends up making it to the cross with Jesus. Judas does not. Here's some application. The church is the group of people that treasures Jesus for Jesus. Not people that simply gather on Sunday mornings. There are plenty of people that gather that don't have Jesus for Jesus. To see that he's all I need. To see that he brought me in to realize he's the center of the universe. And in him, we live and move and have our being. And he's everything. And my heart's affections actually tangibly go there and rejoice in him and trust in him. But there's people that come that don't have a heart that says, yeah, I want Jesus for Jesus. And I think we need to make that clear, that we want to be a people that say, we show up to church, we go into our workplaces, we eat our food, we love our families, because Jesus is satisfying to us. And when something troubling comes up, we're not diverting, because we have everything we need and peace and assurance in him. The doctrine of election births joy in our hearts to those who belong to Jesus and death in the hearts of those who do not. An unbelieving disposition would ask this, how could a loving God choose one man over another? And this is how Paul answers that. Who are you, O man, to answer to God? But here's a believing disposition. A believing disposition sees the beauty of Jesus and marvels that one could ever be saved to know I don't deserve salvation. There's nothing in me that merits that. It's the grace of God that he would move and marvels and rejoices that we went undeservingly from a wretched life deserving God's wrath to a life of God's abundance. And here's the thing, just receive that. 
Don't earn, don't try to outgive God. Receive Jesus. Spend time with Jesus in these times. Let me just finish what I wrote down. I'm going to go on a rant, and then we're going to be done, and then we're going to pray. We ought to stoke the flames of true belief in Jesus in one another, renouncing the love of money, renouncing the use of Jesus, renouncing claiming Christ while not loving him, and affirming joy in his sovereignty and love, and affirming that he is the focal point that brings us together. Worship team, you can come up and begin to play. Affirming that he is better than all things. And here's the thing. In this time, I don't know if you see it. I don't know if you know it. I'm not a worrier of the future, but I think it is important to note that the posture of trusting Jesus as the world more and more closes the gap of freedom and persecutes, it is important to have Jesus for Jesus. As, as times become more tumultuous and all of a sudden there's stuff and you either float with culture and be like, oh, I could settle into comfort here or I could have absolute resolve that Jesus is enough for me. That's important. That's more and more important. And so I want to invite you, come to the feet of Jesus for Jesus. Come to the table of Jesus for Jesus so that when he says something troubling, you're not troubled. He took the trouble for you. He is a sure foundation. He's the only objectively secure thing for all eternity. When we anchor in Jesus, we're there because he's not moving. If we anchor in something else, we might move because everything else is moving. And so Jesus... That was intense. I'm intense, but my intensity doesn't match the intensity of your word. You were actually betrayed. You were actually betrayed. And your betrayal led to our salvation. That's amazing that you would give up yourself for us. And I pray in our hearts, God, Lord, that whether or not we would sell you for 30 pieces of silver, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't allow breathing room for that to happen. But God, that we would so delight in resting in you and being with you that it would be a no-brainer when temptation comes along, when trial comes along to say, I have Jesus and I have all that I need. Unite us there, Jesus. Bring your church together to you. And I pray, Lord, if we're struggling with belief or in your sovereignty and in your love and how those go together, God, I pray you'd show us your love. God, that we would see that you tied for us. Like, what more do we need? Do we want our human rationale to keep us from receiving a foot washing that would lead to you dying for us? I mean, your, your servitude was relentless. And I pray that we would receive that today. Amen.